have prepared 58, 59, and 60. They're all rather short, and we'll try to hurry through them more so than we have in the past. But if you notice Psalm 58, verse 1, it says, Do ye indeed speak righteousness? And he's asking the question, O congregation. He's speaking of a wicked congregation. Do ye judge uprightly, O ye sons of men? Yea, in heart ye work wickedness. Ye weigh the violence of your hands in the earth. So he's speaking of the sons of men in general, and especially those that continue to be depraved and have not repented and not changed. So he's addressing a congregation of evildoers. In Psalm 26, verse 5, he says, I have hated the congregation of evildoers. Well, now, God hates sin, and He hates the sin that uh, evildoers do, but He is long-suffering with a sinner as well. And uh, we find here that He says, uh, <coughs> excuse me, Do ye indeed speak righteous, O congregation? He's speaking of a multitude, of a majority of people. Do ye judge uprightly, O ye sons of men? Yea, in heart ye work wickedness, ye weigh the violence of your hands in the earth. And so what He's speaking of here is a majority of people that are wicked, and especially and directly his enemies. And uh, we know that the Bible teaches us that we are not to follow the evil multitudes. In fact, in Exodus chapter 23 and verse 2, it says, Thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil. We find that a lot of times the multitudes or someone in a great group or a large group or mob will incite others to do evil. And it says, Thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil. So each and every person is responsible, even if the, the bulk of the people want them to do something that's wrong, that doesn't mean you have to go along with it. You're to be a dissenter from that. Neither shalt thou speak in a cause to decline after many to rest, to rest judgment or twist judgment. Sometimes we find that uh, the multitudes influence others. And uh, notice in verse 2 it says, Yea, in heart, you have the back, when I say verse 2, that's back in our psalm that we're studying. Yea, in heart, you work wickedness. Wickedness comes from the heart. These men were deliberate sinners. And the Bible teaches us that out of the heart of man or men come evil thoughts, fornications, adulteries, thefts, murders, and so on. Jesus said, out of the heart of man. That's why the Bible says, Keep thy heart with all diligence. For out of it are the issues of life. Verse 3, we find the sinful nature was born in, man, in them and as well as in all men. It says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they be born, speaking lies. Where are the wicked? That means all of us are here. We're all born sinners. The sinful nature was born in them as well as all of us. Some people continue in that sinful nature all their lives. Others are redeemed from it by the grace of God and given a new nature and born again. But they still have the old carnal sinful nature there because that's what we were born with. We need never forget that. A lot of people forget. They say, well, when I was born again, God did away with that old nature. No, He didn't. It'll rise up here and there and once in a while and first thing you know it tries to get the best of you. It's still there. Don't ever... Don't ever ignore the fact that it is there. And so, notice what it says. The wicked are strained from the womb. They go astray as soon as they be born, speaking lies. You ever seen little babies that speak lies? A little baby, you know, being there in the crib, you know, and they'll just start crying like, oh, it's hurting all over. There's something drastically wrong. 
It's just got to have medical attention, sure enough, or something. It's, it's really in bad shape. You pick it up? Nothing wrong with it. Nothing wrong with it at all. But it's telling you all kinds of stuff. And then, then if that doesn't work, you'll try something else. You know? And, and they, they have a way of starting in. I mean from infancy. It says as soon as they be born. Well, we know that proper training, they can be brought out of some of that and be taught to of what is right and wrong. And then finally they reach, reach the age of five or six years old, four, five, eight, ten, whenever it is in each individual case. We don't set an age and say that's it. But when they reach the age of accountability, they realize that they are sinners and that they need to be saved because they are sinners. And they, they finally recognize it through a process of education and Bible teaching and whatever witness that they receive. So, the sinful nature was born in them. Verse uh, 4 says, Their poison is like the poison of a serpent. It says, They are like the deaf adder that, that stoppeth her ear. Look, which will not hearken to the voice of charmers, charming never so wisely. You know, some of the serpents give attention to charmers. But if we were to, to compare that to men, men whose tongues are full of poison, and the Bible says in Romans 3.13, with their tongues they have used deceit, comparing them, uh, men, all men, Jews and Gentiles, to this sinful nature, and the tongue using deceit, the tongue is full of poison. If we were to consider all men uh, in this condition, and yet they would not listen to, we'll say the charmers are not actually charmers like those charming the serpents, but we find that the Word of God gives out wisdom and that they will not hearken to that wisdom, then they refuse that. Men refuse the wisdom and the counsel of God. Uh, in Proverbs chapter 1, God says to those that refuse, He says, Because I have called and ye have refused. I have stretched out my hand and no man regarded. He says, Therefore will I laugh at your calamity. I will mark when your fear cometh upon you. He said, You will, would none of my counsel you wouldn't listen to my reproof. So God speaks wisdom. And God calls. But men many times refuse. And especially is it so with men that continue in their wickedness. This shows man by nature. But verse 5, I want you to notice. They refuse good advice. They will not hearken to the voice of charmers, charming never so wisely. And then verse 6 through 8, uh, the psalmist tells what God is able to do to make the enemies harmless. Uh, uh, David says, Break their teeth, O God, in their mouth. Break out the great teeth of the young lions, O Lord. See, God is able to render all the wicked harmless. The lion without any teeth wouldn't do too much harm, would it? But with those teeth, he can do a lot of harm. Well, you know, in the case of Daniel, God just shut their mouths, didn't he? Shut the mouths of the lions. But uh, when we find that uh, we speak of uh, the young lions and their a fierceness. In verse 7 it says, Let them melt away as waters which run continually when, when he bendeth his bow to shoot his arrows. Let them be, uh, be as cut in pieces. God is able to render all the enemies harmless. And we find that in the book of Exodus, you remember when old Pharaoh was coming against uh, the Egyptians, I mean, Pharaoh and the Egyptians were coming against uh, Israel in Moses' day. Well, God could render them harmless. They came in and they had their chariots and their horsemen and, and all of their armies. And, and uh, God sent His pillar of cloud and fire. He sent a protective 
barrier between uh, Israel and the Egyptians. The pillar of cloud and fire that went before them removed and went behind them. So it separated the camp of Israel from the camp of the Egyptians. And then when they came to the Red Sea and uh, they had not crossed over the sea, well, the Pharaoh's army was behind them. There were mountains on either side. And then God said, Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And God parted the sea and let them cross over, let Israel cross over dry shod. And then when the armies of uh, the Egyptians started over, what did he do? He turned the water loose and drowned them in the midst of the sea. Their horses and chariots, Moses sang, and Miriam sang rather after the deliverance, hath he cast down, hath he drowned in the sea. So God is able to make all of our enemies harmless. And if, if God is on our side, we need not worry about the enemies. A lot of times we worry too much about them. Have you ever worried about what people think and what they're going to do and this threat and that threat from here and there? Don't worry about it. The Bible says, if God be for us, who can be against us? If we'll rest assured that we're right with God and we're on God's side and that especially God's on our side, that's really the important thing, isn't it? Well, then why worry about it? Someone says, well, they'll think this. They'll do that. They'll do something else. Well, just let them go ahead, you know. When they get through, well, maybe they'll have enough rope to hang themselves. Like Haman did. That's what he was doing. He was building him a gallows so high for Mordecai that he thought, boy, this is really going to be a show for these feeble Jews. And when the time came, well, it backfired on him and they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had built for Mordecai. And sometimes a trap that the evil uh, people lay for you, lay in wait for you, they'll step in it themselves. So, if we have God on our side. Now then, it says in verse 9, Before your pots can feel the thorns, ye shall take them away as with the whirlwind, both living and in his wrath. Look at that. You know, they used to put the thorns under the pot to kindle the fire, and the thorns... Whether it means that they would burn up so quickly or whether they would be blown away before they could even generate any heat, that God would take care of it. Before your pots can feel the thorns, he shall take them away as with the whirlwind, both living and in his wrath. Now then look at this next verse. The righteous shall rejoice when he seeth the vengeance. He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. Now you've seen people that say, well, that's not very good of David to say the righteous will rejoice when they see the when they see the uh, destruction of the wicked. But the universal judge often executes his justice in the earth. Uh, and he does it for both the wicked and the righteous. And God is just in whatever he does. And it says here, the righteous shall rejoice when he seeth the vengeance. And that doesn't mean that it's his vengeance, it's God's vengeance. Well now, when God does something, we ought to rejoice in all the works of God. And, you know, Spurgeon said, The damnation of sinners shall not mar the happiness of saints. It shall not mar the happiness of saints. When you go to heaven, when, when God's people are in heaven, the saints of God are in glory, do you think that our happiness and glory in the presence of the Lord and our salvation that we have in Christ and the eternal redemption that He's purchased for us that we've accepted is going to be marred because some people didn't accept it? It's not. Our happiness will dismiss all of that altogether. In fact, in the book of Revelation, let me read in Revelation 19, if you will, verse 1 and 2. And this is the beloved uh, apostle of love, John the beloved. John the apostle. 
that is the is always spoken of as the uh, apostle of love. He wrote first, second, and third John, but especially first John, greatly on the subject of love. If you read first John, especially, and all through the, book, the Gospel of John as well as that. But I want you to notice what he says here in the Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 and 2. He says, After these things I heard a great voice of much people in heaven. This is John writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments. Now listen. For he hath judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication, and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And again they said, Hallelujah! And her smoke rose up forever and ever. Look at that. Rejoicing. Rejoicing over divine justice. Over God judging the wicked. All the saints there were rejoicing. Heaven was rejoicing for the salvation and power and glory and everything. Because of what? God's vengeance upon that great, wicked, false religion and all the heads of it. And if we study, you remember we studied the book of Revelation. There's uh, the ecclesiastical Babylon. That's the church. And there's the political Babylon and the commercial Babylon. And all three are involved in the destruction that's going to take place. And it doesn't mean it all happened right there, but all of them are mentioned in chapters 17, 18, and 19. But anyway, all commercial Babylon and uh, political Babylon, the political powers and the commercial world, and also the religious false religion, that great harlot is spoken of here uh, in Revelation 19, is going to be destroyed. They're all going to be destroyed under the power of God. So when turn back to our psalm. Let's read verse uh, 10 and 11. The righteous shall rejoice when he seeth the vengeance. He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked, so that a man shall say, Verily there is a reward for the righteous. Verily he is God that he is a God that judgeth in the earth. So God's going to judge both the wicked and he's going to judge uh, his own. The Bible says, and uh, Peter says, If judgment begin at the house of God, where shall the ungodly and sinner appear? So God is going to judge his own, but he's also going to judge the ungodly and the sinner. In verse in chapter 59, verse 1, he says, Deliver me from mine enemies, O my God. Look at this. Defend me from them that rise up against me. David's prayer unto God was for protection and was for deliverance. Deliver me from the workers of iniquity and save me from bloody men. Remember, Paul speaks of men that have not the faith. Uh, ungodly men and he, he uh, asked God to help him and be delivered and deliver him from ungodly men as well as the psalmist here notice he used the word delivered over and over again deliver me verse 1 from mine enemies then he says uh, defend me deliver defend and then verse 2 deliver me from the workers of iniquity and save me it's deliver defend deliver and save and the Lord is the one that we look to for this kind of protection and deliverance. And He's our safe refuge, isn't He, in time of trouble. And then verse uh, 3. Notice what verse 3 says. For lo, they lie in wait for my soul. The mighty are gathered against me, not for my transgression, nor for my sin, O Lord. He says, they're not, they're not against me because of my sin. David's enemies were like animals that would lie in wait. You ever seen some of the... Old uh, 
movies that show out in the wilderness, and especially up in the north where they have all the coyotes or the wolves, or uh, I mean the wolves instead of the coyotes, the wolves around, and they have a fire, and just sure as they let that fire go down, they're just all circled around ready to attack. Well, you know, they lie in wait. They're waiting for their opportunity. And that's the way that they were for David. It seems like they were just waiting for the very moment that they could uh, jump in and do him harm. And it says in verse 3, The mighty are gathered together against me, not for my transgression, nor for my sin. In other words, uh, he's, he's, not, he's saying that it's not because of any bad thing I've done. Look in verse 4, They run and prepare themselves without my fault. Awake to help me, and behold, he was not at fault in any of this. David recognized they were, his enemies were like uh, animals. David recognized the greatness of the enemy. They were great. They were mighty. Notice he used the word mighty in verse 3. And like Jesus, David was innocent of any crime against the king. Jesus was innocent. John 15, verse 25, he says, They hated me with what? Out a cause. Did they have any cause to hate Jesus? Some people do not need a cause. If they've got an idea that they don't like you, or they don't like what you're doing, that's really not a cause, but that's, that arouses their uh, animosity, their anger. They just don't like you or what you're doing, what you stand for. Well, if they don't, they can go on their own way, you know. People don't have to confront you with something they don't agree with. But some people would rather do that. They're rejoicing for... They're, they're uh, looking for a way trying to find a way to oppose. And if it's not one thing you do, it's something else. You know, you can walk along here just as straight a line as you know how, and someone will say you missed the mark somewhere. They say, oh, look there. He staggered off. But, you know, if you do the best you can, just let your enemies wail and wait and gnash their teeth or whatever they will do, because it can do you no harm if you'll stay close to God. And that's the secret of it all. And then inactivity on the Lord's part alarms us. Sometimes we think God is inactive. Look at verse 4. I mean, verse 5. He says, Awake to visit all the heathen. Be not merciful to any wicked transgressors. Selah. Now, he is saying, if they continue in their transgression, it didn't mean that David didn't care about people, but they, he wanted God to awaken in his just judgment upon wickedness. And sometimes we uh, think that God is not moving, and we say, "Awake!" We're like uh, we're like David, and say, "Awake to visit, awake to help my problem, awake in this time of storm." Remember the disciples when Jesus was asleep on the, in, in the ship; they awoke him and said, "Master, carest thou not that we perish?" So they they were they were waking up, they were waking Jesus up to see if he really cared about them. Well, he. He was taking care of them anyway. As long as he was in the ship, nothing was going to happen anyway. But they couldn't see that. Remember, Jesus said, let us pass over to the other side. He went down the ship and went to sleep. And uh, the storm arose, and they were fearful and afraid, and they thought they were going to, uh, uh, the ship was going to capsize. And they, they began to, to fear, and they awoke Jesus. And they said, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And he said, O oh, ye of little faith. Why were, why were they of little faith? Because Jesus said, let us pass over to the other side. He didn't say halfway and down, did he? That's the way with our salvation. You know, someone says, oh, you know, he saved me, but you know, I'm, I'm afraid that, you know, the ship's going to sink anyway. 
Well, why should you be afraid? He said, let's pass over. He told you and I, He wants to meet us in glory. He didn't say, I'm going to save you part of the way and you've got to keep yourself the rest of the way and if you don't, you'll never make it. That's not the language of the Lord. He saves and He keeps. And a lot of people are just scared to death. Well, you know, I'm not going to make it. Well, if, if it's presumption on our part, that's, that would be bad. But if it's faith on our part, that because Jesus has promised, that's a different story. And faith takes the Lord at His word because He says, those that He saves, He will keep, and no one shall be able to pluck them out of My hand, He says. And He says, I'm my Father one, and no one can pluck them out of My Father's hand. And furthermore, He prayed a great high priestly prayer in the 17th of John. And you know what He said there? He says, Father, I will. The will of the Son said, Father, I will. I think whatever He wills will be done. And he says, Father, I will that all those whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. He says, I want them all to be with me there in glory. He said, I want all of them to be there. And he says, this is my prayer. Someone says, well, how, you know, the only way that you could lose your salvation would be if Jesus' prayer was unanswered. And he says, Father, I know that Thou hearest me always. He always heard. He heard always. The Bible says uh, that He was heard in that He feared. Even in that hour of great supplication, Hebrews 5 or 7, I believe, tells about it. That when He had offered up prayers and supplication with strong, t- uh, strong crying and tears and was heard in that He feared. That means He depended upon God and He reverenced God and He looked to God and He had faith in God, the Father. So he was heard. So our salvation is sure in Jesus, isn't it? I want you to notice this uh, verse uh, 5. Thou therefore, O Lord, God of hosts, the God of Israel, awake to visit all the heathen. Be not merciful to any wicked transgressor. Selah. Verse 6 now. Verse 6 and 7. Let's read. They return at evening. They make a noise like a dog and go round about the city. Behold, they belch out with their mouths. Swords are in their lips. For who, say they, doth hear? Look at the boasting of unbelief of the enemy. The boasting and the unbelief of the enemy. They come back. They return at evening. They make a noise like a dog. They they surround him. When it says they belch out their mouth, swords are in their lips, it means that the uh, atheistic and wicked cry out against God and out against God's people. But what does it amount to to the Lord? Verse 8 says, But thou, O Lord, shalt laugh at them. Thou shalt have all the heathen in derision. If you read Psalm 2, it says, Why do the heathen rage? The people imagine a vain thing. Let's turn back. Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. This is what the heathen say. This is what they said in Jesus' day. It says, He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. And it says, The Lord shall have them in derision. That's exactly the same thing that's said over here. He's going to laugh at them. It says, Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son. This day I have begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. 
And so he goes on to speak about Christ and the fact that when the heathen are raging, even when they were raging against Jesus, remember Herod and all of, and then Pilate and then uh, all of the ones that were set against him and the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees and the heathen, as well as some of God's own people, the Jews, but the heathen, the ungodly nations, Rome, and all the rulers were set against him. And David says, look at our psalm, Psalm 59. It says in verse uh, 8, But thou, O Lord, shalt laugh at them. Thou shalt have all the heathen in derision. Because of his strength, God's strength, will I wait upon thee, for God is my defense. There was no doubt in David's mind about God's ability to take care of the enemy. You and I shouldn't have any doubt in our mind about God's ability. God is willing to take care of the enemy. And you know, if you and I would realize this all the while, we'd quit worrying so much about the enemy. God is well able to take care of them. Because of His strength will I wait upon thee. The Bible says, They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Then look at verse uh, 10. It says, The God of my mercy shall prevent me. God shall let me see my desire upon mine enemies. The Lord goes before us to prevent us in times of danger. It says in Psalm 80, verse 1, Thou leadest Joseph like a flock. The Bible tells us that he's our shepherd. And he's going to go before us. And he's going to lead us. He's going to take care of us. Look in verse 11. Slay them not, lest my people forget. Scatter them by thy power, and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. In other words, it seemed like earlier... He wanted God to destroy them. And now he says, slay them not. You see this? Slay them not, lest my people forget. Scatter them by thy power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. He, he's asking in this case for God to spare them, but rather chasten them. And he says in verse 12, For the sin of their mouth and the words of their lips, let them even be taken in their pride for cursing and lying which they speak. Cursing and lying. You see that? This shows the the nature of God of of God's enemies as well as David's enemies. The nature of these enemies. Cursing and lying. You know, you say, Well that man is he curses so much with his mouth. Well if he curses probably he lies too. It says cursing and lying, they go together. You find a man of that character, you can just almost rest assured he's gonna tell lies too. Because they go along together. Cursing and lying which they speak. The atheist mind curses not only against God, but he lies because he tells lies of deceit, which they speak. And then the evil man, uh, I mean, verse 13 shows us the purpose of God's judgment upon them. It says, Consume them in wrath, consume them that they may not be, and let them know that God ruleth in Jacob unto the ends of the earth. In other words, whatever you're doing to them, whatever judgment, whatever chastening, whatever consuming, whatever righteous indignation, let it be for this purpose, the purpose of divine judgment. Remember Daniel 4 verse 25 speaks of the fact that it says, Till thou know that that, uh, the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men. Till thou know. Verses 14 and 15 show us the evil men are put to shame. 
It says, And at evening let them return, and let them make a noise like a dog, and go round about the city. Let them wander up and down for meat, and grudge if any, if they be not satisfied. Grudging, they become like hungry dogs. Remember what happened when Cain slew Abel? He was made a fugitive and a vagabond. It says, Thou shalt be in the earth. When Jesus rose from the dead, it was embarrassing to the enemies of Jesus. Then the grounds for praise, verse 16 and 17. Here's grounds for praise because of his power, because of his mercy, and because of his protection. Verse 16 and 17. Power, mercy, and protection. Notice here. But I will sing of thy power. God has power. He has power to take care of us. He has power to destroy and chasten uh, the wicked. Yea, I will sing aloud of thy mercy. He has power to bring mercy in the morning. For thou hast been my defense and refuge in the day of my trouble. I want to give you some words to uh, circle or underline. Power, mercy, defense, refuge. Look at those. I will sing of thy power. Yea, I will sing aloud of thy mercy in the morning. For thou hast been my defense and refuge in the day of my trouble. And we all have days of trouble, don't we? David says, in the day of my trouble. Look how he has risen from where he started out. He was in terrible shape to start with and seemed like everything developed into a greater height. Now he says in verse 17, Unto thee, O my strength, will I sing, for God is my defense and the God of my mercy. Underline defense and mercy. Unto thee, O my strength. Strength, defense, and mercy. So we can praise God for his power, for his mercy, for his defense, that means protection, power, mercy, and protection. Psalm 34, verse 7 says, The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth them. All of these things. Look at Psalm 60. It says, O God, thou hast, look at this, cast us off. Thou hast scattered us. Thou hast been displeased. O turn thyself to us again. Now then, Israel is chastened because of their sins. You know, it's all right for the preacher to get up and say, look, the wicked are being judged, the heathen are being judged, sinners that are ungodly, sinners are being judged. But when God says, look what David says, O God, Thou hast cast us off. He's talking about Israel being chastened because of their sins. I did my thesis on the book of Amos. And uh, in the book of Amos... He starts out and he denounces six heathen nations round about. Moab and Edom and various ones. And he calls them by name. And, it, and Amos says, For three transgressions and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof. And he speaks this same message to six heathen nations. And then he says, For six transgressions of Israel. and I mean, for three transgressions of Israel. i got my six mixed up there. Six heathen nations. But then he says, For three transgressions of Israel, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof. The whole saying was simply this, that after three transgressions you've tipped the scale, you've gone too far, you've gone one too many, and God's judgment is determined. That's what he was saying. But he turns from these six heathen nations, and then he turns to Israel and says the same thing. And then after Israel he says, For Three transgressions of Judah, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof. So he deals with a heathen nation, six of them, then turns to Judah and Israel and brings the, the chastening hand of God home to his own people. 
And so the preacher can get up and he can preach all day about the, the prostitutes and about the alcoholics and about the skid row and about these te- terrible people on every, and the, you know, dopers and all kinds of people. But when he starts saying, the Bible says, and we start here at the house of God and we see ourselves, boy, oh me. Instead of amen, it's oh me, isn't it? Used to be late in, it's, it's said that there was a lady, uh, the preacher was preaching, you know, and he was just going along and he's talking about all these things that I've just mentioned. And he says, and, and you uh, tobacco chewers and you snuff dippers, and that old woman says, you, you quit preaching now and gone to meddling. <laughs> Leave my snuff alone, she's saying. <laughs> well, that's the way sometimes we are. Aren't we? we? As long as it's getting on the other guy, it's okay. But when it, but you know, I never preach uh, on the sins of the saints, but what I think of myself. And it's not that the preacher is just uh, getting on everyone out there. He's thinking about, look, I, I've got these same uh, tendencies, same faults, and same failures, and I'm capable of doing these things myself. And I'm sounding the warning out there, but I'm also sounding the warning in here. And any time a preacher preaches, he should have that consciousness of himself as one. Uh, remember old Isaiah said, uh, I am a man of unclean lips. But he said, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He didn't just go out and say, well, God, you've shown me this vision. Isaiah chapter 6, when his eyes, he says, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord high and lifted up. His train filled his temple and he saw the seraphim crying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And they had each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face. With twain he covered his feet. And with twain he did fly. And he said, uh, Woe is me, for I am undone. He didn't say after that vision, Woe are all these people, for they're all sinners. And he started right here, didn't he? And he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people. We're all unclean. You find when Nehemiah prayed, he confessed his sins and the sins of the children of Israel. When... Uh, when uh, each one of those prophets, when Isaiah prayed, it was much the same way. All of the great prophets of old first brought themselves in the presence of God. And they said, we, they didn't say they have sinned, they said, we have sinned. We have done this. We've departed from your word. We've not walked in your ways. But here in this case, so does David. He says, oh my God, thou hast cast us. He's including himself with all of Israel. Israel is chastened because of their sin. Israel dwelling in the land of Palestine was conditional back in Deuteronomy 28. National Israel is still cast off because of divine displeasure. Jesus speaks of of Jerusalem being cast off and of uh, the nation being cast off. And uh, Romans tells that they shall be scattered until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled and then... Then he says they're going to return. You read uh, Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. 9, 10, and 11. And it will tell you about Israel as a nation. And it tells that they will return. They are not cast off forever because there's a day of their return. So, O God, Thou hast cast us off. Thou hast scattered us. Thou hast been displeased. means God chastened them. O turn Thyself to us again. He was asking God to turn back to them because they uh, have been cast off. In verse 2, The whole earth trembles when God speaks. Look at this. Thou hast made the earth to tremble. Thou hast broken it. Heal the breaches thereof, for it shaketh. 
If you had the earth shaking, think of the earth shaking of quaking and breaking the walls and then the places, the breaches or the breaks in the walls. He says, Thou hast broken it. Heal the breaches thereof. Make it whole again for it shaken. The whole earth trembles when God speaks. And nothing, nothing is solid and nothing is sure when God speaks in His wrath. There are those things that can be removed and be shaken. You read in Hebrews 12 when we speak, we had a message on the, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Look in verse uh, uh, 3. Thou hast showed thy people hard things. Thou hast made us to drink the wine of astonishment. You know, whatever the Lord has uh, broken, He can heal. And He does heal. And he, God's wrath has to be demonstrated before His people will believe. Thou hast showed thy people hard things. Sometimes we have to be showed hard things before we realize and made to drink of the wine of astonishment before we realize that God can do something about it or will do something about it. In verse 4, it says, Thou hast given a banner to them that fear thee, that it may be displayed because of the truth. Selah. Thou hast given a banner. God always have it has a few that will listen to them that fear thee. Notice, these are the ones that listen. And the banner they bear is an instant. And that it may be displayed because of the truth. When you have a nation going out to battle, you have them carrying the banner or the ensign before them, the flag. You've got a thing in Congress now to, to get on to these people that just today announced burn the flag. Some people say, well, that's their constitutional right to burn the flag if they want to. Well, I think it ought to be against the, against the law to do it. Yeah, I think they ought to, if a guy doesn't have enough respect for this country and wants to burn the flag, he needs to get out of it and go to another country that he'll raise the flag up. Whether it be Russia or China or Korea or wherever. He needs a flag that he can stand behind. And we stand behind ours because it stands for something. And I believe it ought to be a law myself. Now, some people may disagree with me. We have all this ACLU, you know, civil rights of people and stuff, and don't trample on my freedoms. Well, that's exactly, it seems to be, what uh, they're protecting is that kind of a thing. And I know there's some things that are abused, but, uh, you know, you can almost call out the things that are, that are wrong. Or conscience should enter the picture as well as our laws, and our nation was founded upon uh, God, and the government was founded upon God, and now we've pushed him completely out of it, out of the schools, out of the, out of the land, out of the Congress, out of the Senate, out of everywhere. Just get rid of him. Nobody wants that anymore because it's not supposed to be a mixture of church and state, you know. Well, uh, the way it was written, it was to protect. It was to protect, not to do what it has done, is to eliminate the church and eliminate God. But anyway, that's another argument altogether. But let's go on down to verse 4. Look at it. Thou hast given a banner to them that fear thee, that it may be displayed because of the truth. And verse 5, That thy beloved may be delivered, save, save with thy right hand, and hear me. A prayer for God's beloved people to be delivered. In verse 6, For God has spoken in His holiness, even God's wrath is holy. I will rejoice, I will divide Shechem, and meet out the valley of Succoth. He names several places. That, that under his power that Israel had obtained an inheritance. He says, Ephraim also is the strength of my head. Judah is my lawgiver. Remember, out of the lawgiver came Jesus, right? 
Jesus is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He says, Moab is my washpot. Moab is uh, uh, Moab, one of the descendants of Lot, the Moabites, by an illicit relationship with his two daughters. Remember, Ruth was a Moabitess, and in spite of the fact that she was a Moabitess, and under the curse when she met Boaz, he redeemed her from the curse of that law and brought her into fellowship with himself. That's what Jesus has done for us. He's redeemed us from the curse of the law. He brought us into fellowship with himself. There's a great lesson in that in the book of Ruth. And then he says, Edom will I cast out, uh, will I cast out my shoe, Philistia triumph thou because of me. Who will bring me into the strong city? Who will lead me into Edom? Wilt not thou, O God, which hast cast us off? There's a lot of prophetic stuff here as well as um, it could speak of the uh, of Petra, the strong city, the city of the rock. It says in the margin, city of strength. And it could relate to the future and a prophecy of the hiding of uh, the nation during the tribulation at that time. But verse 10 and 11 and 12, and we'll close. It says, Wilt, wilt not thou, O God, which hast cast us off? O, o thou, O God, which didst not go out with our armies? Look at that. Give us help from trouble, for vain is the help of man. David prays for leadership and divine aid, and David knew that Israel's hope was in the Lord. And he says, Give us help from trouble, for vain is the help of man. Have you ever come to the place that you know that your troubles cannot be answered and deliverance cannot be brought by man, but they have to come from God? There's a time that you come to that place. And then the last verse, Through God we shall do valiantly, for He it is that shall tread down our enemies. Remember, Jesus speaks of our enemy that is the devil, Satan. He says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And then Paul later refers to that final judgment and he says, The Lord shall tread Satan under your feet shortly. Speaking of Christ's coming in the book of Romans. So we know that the victory is claimed. The victory is really won for you and I because it says, Through God we shall do valiantly, for he it is that shall tread down our enemies. And so every child of God has the promise of an ultimate victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil, and it's in the future. Now, nowadays, what are we to do now as, as Christians? We're to fight 